So that for your listening audience, they're all a business. Bad things can happen. We try to ensure that it doesn't happen, but bad things can happen. And on a portfolio wise, though, I'd say that that's the worst performing, but I've had 4X and several 2.2s and 2.3s and lessons learned and they only make you stronger and better. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, we're talking with Randy Langendurfer about his experience becoming a real estate investor in 2009 as a hard money lender and then pivoting, becoming an investor in syndications, a passive investor, and now he's an active investor. And the detail that we're really digging into is his experience as a KP in syndications. If you don't know what that is, don't worry, you're going to find out. But it's a way to participate a little bit more than an LP in a syndication, and you can get something for your efforts. And he's going to tell you what, I'm not going to ruin it for you now. But if you want to take a step just above being a, a, an LP, KP might be an option for you. You need to understand the risks, you need to understand what you're getting into before you just do it. Randy did that. He's a risk mitigation guy. And that's what we're diving into today. So really interesting. We actually have not discussed this on the show. And from my observation, people aren't really talking about becoming a KP in syndications, not a GP so much, not an LP, a KP. It's a little different. There's a distinction from them. And he's going to tell you what it is. Really interesting. Great conversation with Randy. And you're going to learn so much. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, a real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. Really appreciate you tuning in today. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please do take a quick second, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. If you don't mind, I would appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. Gives us a little more social proof, right? Other people see you're out there, you're enjoying the show, you're tuning in. We appreciate that so much. And I appreciate that, right? Because that helps the show grow. And that gives me the warm and fuzzies because I get to see that you, you were out there, are engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Because that's what this show is all about. It's all about helping you become a bigger real estate investor or become a real estate investor if you're not in real estate yet. That's what we're all about here. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, do take a quick second, look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest is Randy Langendurfer. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. And today we're talking about becoming a KP in syndications, why Randy did it, what he got for it, and some risks that he had to mitigate along the way and how he did so. So really interesting stuff. Without any further ado, here we go. Randy, thank you for joining us today. Taylor, it's my pleasure. I look forward to the conversation and hopefully providing some value into your listening audience. Absolutely. You have a wealth of experience and we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive in one in particular area today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about what you do and what you invest in? Well, thanks. Thanks again. So Randy Langendorfer, I uh, currently live in Houston, Texas submarket. I am both a GP, KP and about uh, 250 doors and I'm a LP and several thousand doors over the last uh uh, since 2014, what's that, seven and a half years or so, I've been in a multifamily space. Before that, I got started in real estate in the single family space as a hard money lender. At the time, I let me go into however much you wanted all this, but uh, a hard money lender living in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, flipping houses in South Florida, Dade County, and moved to Houston for, for business purposes. I still have a W-2 job, uh, have, have a family 
Uh, so I, I am also a W-2 that distinguishes me, I think, as a passive investor. Uh, I've got a lot of experience and look at a lot of deals like probably you do. And I think that gives me a much better view when I am a GP uh, looking at deals as well as to how the, the passive investor is going to succeed in this. Great. And, you know, there's a few things that I want to discuss there. First, let's touch on your experience as a hard money lender and why you would make the shift from hard money to multifamily. So I started out, I'm a corporate guy, still I'm a corporate guy. And on my day job, I deal in the, I'll say the governance risk areas. So um, corporate compliance, privacy, IT security, uh, audit services are my areas of expertise in the corporate world. So I, I label those under risk mitigation headings. And so every time I I come to an investment. I look at it from a, a risk perspective as a corporate guy would. That's just that's smart. That's just my background. I mean, if it, somebody else comes from a marketing perspective, I guess, but uh, if that's their corporate background. But I got into this seven and a half. Well, I got back. I got into real estate. I'll say in about two thousand and nine. I have was living in the Cleveland, Ohio market at the time. I had a brother-in-law who was recently displaced from a large uh, regional bank there in the, the Cleveland, Ohio market. Guy I really expected came to me after going to Armando Monteleglo's um, flipping school. And he's a late night infomercial guy. If you <laughs> ever can't sleep, you can find him on one of the 2 a.m. <laughs> real estate infomercials uh, that last. But anyhow, he came to me and he had connected with a group out of South Florida at the time that he met and was interested in um, being a hard money lender. And I didn't even know what a hard money lender was at the time. But the bottom line is, as you know, we connected with this group in South Florida. We became the money backers. We would give them the assets to buy the house, to rehab the house, and then turn it in. So that that has a lot of advantages. We did it for several years, several million dollars worth, and we're, we're successful. Um, but I found that it was very time-consuming and difficult to scale for me. So every asset I had to look at the submarket, the comps, and the you know the mile, three mile, five mile radius. I had to get a lot of comfort with the the repair budget as to how much they were going to put into it and the quality, and how much of that would really be uh, supported by the market comps in the area. And though it was successful, and I really enjoyed it, when I came to Houston, I ended up going to a uh, uh, lifestyles unlimited conference here. They're a big educational arm in Houston, Texas, and I, I learned about multifamily. And I learned that it's a business and that um, it's non-recourse debt, which really fascinated me that I could buy a multi-million dollar debt and never be held responsible. Personally, I'm responsible, but I couldn't, they couldn't take my house and my car versus even in the single family world, uh, someone could sue me and come after my personal assets. So the non-recourse interested me, the network uh, of people and educational arms. Uh, I went from Lifestyles Unlimited to uh, the Sumrock Group in Dallas, Texas for a while. And today I'm in Rod Khalif's organization as in, in his mastermind and one of his personal coaches. So I get to spend a lot of time with students and newer people to the industry trying to make a transition. And uh, I just really enjoy it. I'm a real estate nerd. <laughs> well, Rod's been on the show in the past and we had a great uh, conversation with him. Now, uh, you talk about risk mitigation. That's really one of the things that strikes me as one of the biggest downsides of being a hard money lender because 
you're oftentimes writing a very large check. It might only be you really funding the thing and you don't know what's going to come up potentially in the rehab. How big of a check were you writing typically as a hard money lender? We, uh, my partner and I would write anywhere from 100 to 150,000 combined, sometimes higher than that. It started to edge up as, you know, in 2009 and 10, it wasn't hard to find deep discounted houses <laughs> anywhere in America because, you know, the, the whole economy was in shambles. But as time went on, 2011, 12, it, it became more difficult. And though that industry still thrives today, um, we were buying houses at 60, 55 cents on the dollar then uh, of their market value and putting in, you know, 10, 20, $30,000 and it was profitable. But yes, to your point, risk. Um, there is certainly risk, risk in the rehab, risk in the people doing it, flips, your comfort level with them, and then ultimately market risk of what that asset is going to be able to sell for once it is rehabbed, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Spend some time at Rias and you're going to meet people who have really gotten a flip wrong once or twice and and potentially lost some money. And, you know, we, we wish them all the best. But another aspect of lending that I think is a, a big downside that's maybe not discussed is the tax situation. So can you tell us about how that impacted you? You're, you're making a return, but ta- being taxed as a lender is not quite the same as being a, a multifamily investor. Yeah. When I was in the, when you're in that space, I mean, it, it basically, it was, it was, uh, I, I actually was doing it through a, a self-directed IRA. Okay. So it really, it wasn't taxed. Good. Uh, but if you're doing it outside of it, you're absolutely right. It, it's going to fall through. If you're in a partnership or a, an LLC, it most likely is going to fall through straight to your ordinary income line on your, on your tax return and be taxed at that ordinary income rate because you don't want to flip to go more than a year. You want a flip to be done in 12, 15 weeks, three to four months, uh, ideally. And so all that income does fall through right to your right to your bottom line or, or your AGI, your adjusted gross income. That's going to be probably the highest tax rate you're going to pay on any money you make. But that's smart of you to do it in a self-directed IRA. Did you use a, like a checkbook control IRA or just a straight uh, self-directed IRA? How did you set that all up? Yeah, I, I got started in a self-directed IRA uh, at that time, and I'm in. I have a couple of different accounts today. I still use them for uh, passive investing. That's either some people like that strategy, some don't. But I, I did not do a checkbook IRA or a solo one, solo four one four hundred one k. It's just strictly um, self-directed IRA, and and I'll put my plug in. So as a I said, risk mitigation person in the corporate world. I like the idea of somebody else having fiduciary responsibility for that account versus uh, the solo 401k account that I'm purely liable for all of the uh, regulatory responsibilities. And pluses and minuses, that's not to say that a solo 401k or a checkbook IRA, I use those terms synonymously, are bad. Uh, It's just investors should know what they're getting into. Absolutely. It is it is a bit iffy, murky, if you will. And you know, there are some rumblings about maybe the leg- legality of checkbook control or the ability to really keep it uh, compliant is, is pretty difficult, depending on who you talk to. And you know, I'm certainly I don't count myself an expert in that area. I, I would agree with you 100 uh, percent, Taylor. You're going to get at least three different reviews, three different views if you talk to two different people. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, sure. There's there's a, there's a difference uh, and people just pluses and minuses. So, yeah, absolutely. So you made that shift into multifamily investing, and 
one of the aspects of being a syndication investor that we have actually not touched on on the show, to my knowledge, is being a I'm not even going to get it right. Being a KP. And I'd like to learn about your experience as a KP, deciding you wanted to go that direction, things you thought about, especially I love in the context of risk mitigation. So first off, tell us what a KP is. Yeah, a KP is a key principal. And a key principal is uh, someone on, it's, it's, I'm only aware of it in the agency bit, the Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac bit. Uh, there's a there's a, a general partner. There's a key principal, and then there are limited investors or limited passive investors. And so the key P, the KP, the key principal, is basically just a signatory on the loan. So when a syndicator needs to buy a ten million dollar, they're buying a ten million dollar property, and they need to take out an eight million dollar loan. They need to have a combined net worth of, in this example, eight million dollars for the agency to accept the loan. So many people may not have $8 million of net worth, so they partner with other people or they, they seek key principles. And that key principle is one who just helps them meet that mandate of the um, $8 million in my example. So I was able to add on, the, uh, add on to that and help them achieve the objective. And so that opens one up to just a little bit more risk. So as that risk mitigation guy, I was very keen on understanding my potential liability and what that meant. And so um, my discovery is that I could be held personally liable if what's referred to as the bad boy carve outs within the agency covenant agreements are broken. So what's that mean? That, That just means in the loan documents, there are paragraphs that are referred to as, they don't label them bad boy, but that's what people in the industry call them, bad boy carve-outs. And primarily that that says that if the property managers, the GPs, were to commit fraud, that the GPs and the KPs could be held personally liable. So the non-recourse in that example, if the very, very worst were to happen, the non-recourse would be broken and the GPs and the KPs could be held personally liable. That means they could come after my personal assets, my house, my cars, any bank accounts in the very extreme case. So th- that's what uh, a KP does. Or why? And you ask, why would someone sign up for that? Good question. Why would someone sign up for that? Because I had been doing investing for a couple of years and passively, and I had the desire to move into an active role, meaning I wanted to be a GP and sponsor a deal. And so you, you, you can't just walk into the agency the, or a brokerage agency and say, hey, I want a Fannie Mae loan for $5 million. Uh, they're going to say, what's your experience? And so you have to have what's referred to as your agency card. You have to be on a loan as a guarantor, either as a GP or a KP. So why would someone be a KP on a loan? Because they want to get their agency card to start with. That means I was, as a passive investor, I was able to get my credibility from the agency. So then when I did come back to the agency, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Freddie Mac as a sponsor or GP, I had credibility. I had, it's just like getting a credit card. I had a, I had a history. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I had, a, I had a history with the agency very simply, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Now, did you receive any like um, additional compensation or equity shares for for putting that up? Because, I mean, unless you really want to get on it, it, is the risk 
still worth it to get that card? And once you're on, would you really keep doing it? So was there any like financial incentive? Well, I wouldn't advise your listening audience to be a KP on many. Uh, and I wouldn't advise them to be a KP unless they really wanted to become a GP at some future point. I don't see why you'd want to even have that remote risk of that happening. But there are, I think the answer to your question, Taylor, there are all different kinds of models. Mm -hmm. So there are some sponsors that are willing to give an equity stake for signing as a KP and a loan. There are some that will give you a flat fee. And I quite honestly did it for no comp no additional compensation at all. That's the only one I've ever signed on as a KP. But uh, I would say that back to the risk mitigation, I was the third in line and I knew very well the two people in front of me had a whole lot deeper ballot balance sheets <laughs> than I did. So my simple risk mitigation was if the worst were to happen, they're going to go after those two guys before they come after me. <laughs> and that may be that may be rather selfish, but it's factual. <laughs> Fair enough. But there still is, you know, I have to assume you went a bit deeper in your risk mitigation strategy and you didn't just, you know, get a hat with uh, deal sponsors names in it and just pick one and go with that. Right. You that's true. I'm sure you had some, you know, ex you had experience from for the past. So what did you do to select the sponsor that you wanted to be uh, KP with? Well, so that's a great uh, follow-up question and clarification. I should have provided you earlier. Thank no, you. No worries. So I, you're right. There, your audience will see many, I'll say, email blasts out from sponsors today. Hey, do you want to be a KP? Uh, sign up for this sheet if you want to be a KP. Uh, and, and so back to the answer to your question is I knew very well the two people they that I had signed in front of me. And so I, it was two people that I had known very well from the Sumrock organization. One of them was Brad Sumrock himself. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the other one was uh, Kenny Wolf, who has done a lot, a lot of uh, investments. And in, so they were much earlier in their career. This was five, six years ago. Um, but still, I knew those people, I won't say intimately, but I knew them very well. I knew their conservative approach. I knew how they underwrote things. I knew they had investors in mind. They had had a very, very good track record, which if anybody on your listening audience is considering being a KP, you, you really need to get to know the general partners well, their track record. Uh, if it's their first time, that'd be a red flag for me. But if they've done 20 or 10 and they've had great success and they're extending you a courtesy and maybe they're going to give you a flat fee or some percentage and you want to be a general partner someday, it's probably worth considering. Fair enough. Fair enough. And those are uh, two great guys to uh, sign on the dotted line next to. I mean, you know, those are those are two very experienced names, um, especially now. And uh, I'm sure, you know, at the time they were uh, had plenty of experience, too. Is that and something I'm happy, happy to say that the property I signed on is kicking butt and taking pri prisoners? Uh, we still own it seven <laughs> years, six years later, and it's wow. it's it's doing very well and uh, happy. Good. It's very common at you know after a few few years to refinance. Did you choose to do that, or were there you know prepayment penalties, things like that, that you weren't able to to do? I mean, six years is a while. You probably added a lot of value. Other investors might want some of their capital back, but hey, we're going to keep owning the property. So, what was the decision there? Yeah, 
the the thought process was is that I, I think it's I think it's six years today, going on seven uh, sometime this year. So that is a long time in the syndication world. But uh, we did refinance, took a bunch of money out year three, I think it was, to the investing community, and we actually just had a conversation as the group probably six nine months ago about selling it versus keeping it, and it was a consensus to keep it just because. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad. One, you're deferring the tax gain to the market nine months ago through today and for the next 12 <laughs> months or so is only going to, the property sits in Columbus, Ohio, in a very advantageous part of Columbus. So it was, in my mind, there, there's a, not a bad decision. We could have sold it and take more than double our money and we keep it and let the yield maintenance burn off a little bit more and then decide what to do, refinance it again, you know, and take all your money out. Or do you want to, and I'm, I'm happy with that strategy to re- take all my money out and just take the quarterly distribution, infinite return. I'm, I'm good with that <laughs> as an investor. That's good. Are those uh, refinances, is that like supplemental loans or, or how did that all have to work? Yeah. So uh, agency loans, you're able to take out a supplemental uh, loan, which really means in our example, year three, you take out, you know, the first loan was a 10 year, 10 year, 30 year amortization, 10 year maturity. So listeners means that 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 amortizes at a 30 year rate, but in 10 years, you got to refinance or sell it. And that's what the maturity rate is. So when you take out a supplemental loan in year three, you, the, we had shown a lot of value in the property the first three years. So we had increased the NOI. And so the agency allows you, Fannie in this case, allows you to take out a supplemental loan. And that is basically, they look at the current value of the property, uh, you know, NOI divided by the cap rate. And they see that, you know, you, you it's worth a million dollars today. You paid 750 for it. So in this little example, you have $250,000 of increased value and we'll give you i think it's 70 percent of it uh, 70 percent of that 250 is called a supplemental loan and generally that's just uh, a return to investors and everybody's high-fiving each other and saying thank you very much so you, so you basically have two loans that are on that 10-year pace though you have one that was one through ten and you have one that's years four through ten but the property has continued to has continued to grow over the last several years, so uh, it was it was a win. And um, good groups just have to decide kind of what they want. Uh, take the quick win and take the quick money and run. I was in another one recently as a passive investor. Actually, the guy just called me Friday night and said that uh, we've been in it twelve months. He's he want, he's he's got a, a signed purchase order to sell it, going to double our money. Wow, nice twelve months. That's what I said, and I'm like. <laughs> Okay. I, I said, yeah. <laughs> I, I said, there's no wrong answer here. If we held it, I think it would continue to increase in value in the next 12 months. Um, but these are first world problems. <laughs> it's hard to go broke making a profit, which is one of my uh, my favorite sayings. So I like that. As a risk mitigation guy, right? You've seen all this appreciation in the market. You timed the, you know, you're getting into the market during the sale of a lifetime in in 2009. And what are your thoughts about I mean, is that going to happen again? Debts continue to get cheaper, even though the whole time I've been a real estate investor, people have said, oh, the next crash is right around the corner. And you know that's probably the case for you as well. What do you think about 
the future. We're not obviously making any recommendations. Yeah. We're just giving thoughts. So what do you think about the next uh, few years? I, I like to joke that you get what you pay for. You're not paying me anything, Taylor. So <laughs> my opinion is not worth, uh, it's worth as much as worth as the next guy. But I, I would say I'm, I'm bullish on the, on multifamily and commercial real estate. Uh, the, I guess the short answer is I, I think you should buy in every market up, down and sideways. And, and you should always be looking, but it always depends on how your, what your assumptions now are and how you're underwriting them. Right. So, Yes, the market is pretty much across the country insanely hot for multifamily right now. But I have this conversation with a couple of my partners. You know, are we going to look back five years from now and say the prices we're experiencing today were ridiculously cheap? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I, I, I tend to be um, a little more war torn and say that's probably not going to happen. But I think if you buy right, you know, the assumptions that you, you buy. You take long-term debt out. You don't buy in the hood. You buy solid assets. You take out long-term debt on them, so you have one less verb on the table, and you manage it extremely well. Uh, I think there is, with inflation coming, that you're going to see natural appreciation continued on these kinds of assets. And I really think, from all the people I listen to and read to, that this is going to be uh, the next five to seven years, the year of the operator. It's going to distinguish people from those who are average operators and those who are above average operators. That is a good way to put it. Uh, you know, great, great thing to bring up the quality of the operator. So fantastic. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own and the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called Ground Floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Randy, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? The best investment ever made other than my education. I'm going to say first one, the best one is marrying my wife. That's on a personal vein. On the second vein, I would say is uh, my formal education. I am a finance guy. MBA, CPA. So that's one thing, but I, I'll invest in your real estate education. For the, your listening audience, invest in your real estate education. Many people are reluctant to spend money for one of the educational arms or go to a, a seminar or whatever. 
And, you know, we have spent a lot of money getting technical degrees, undergraduate degrees, graduate degrees. Uh, and I, I just am always floored when somebody won't spend 300 bucks or 500 bucks to go to a seminar or even a thousand. I understand that's a lot of money for some people, but you get what you put into it. So invest in yourself. And the other best investment I ever made was a 4X return in um, a multifamily property that I, 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 I was 4X in 20, 23 months, Dang. less than two years. Crazy. Wow. That was probably a few years ago, I would bet. You know. Yeah. I, I think the property was sold in 18. I think it was 16 to 18 or 15 to 17 time period. But uh, that was a unicorn. I don't think we'll ever see that again. So uh, maybe not never, but a long time. Well, it's, you know, it's good to look for base hits and not always, you know, the grand slam home run. So, you know, again, nobody ever went broke making a profit. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? I prefer to think of them as learning lessons. <laughs> <laughs> um, the worst investment, I'll, I'll, I'll cite you two of them. One in a single family space, lesson learned, is one of the people we funded money to in a single family space lost the house. I was in a second mortgage position and uh, basically I'm still suing the person today over it. Oh man. And uh, that's when I was getting into uh, multifamily. And then my first investment in multifamily was a 225 unit. This is a subject of another whole um, hour podcast, uh, a 225 unit in Port Arthur, Texas. For your listening audience, that's about 150 miles due east of Houston, sits right on the ocean. It was um, uh, another sponsor who I know and trusted. We bought it uh, within the first 16 months. He returned, first 12 months, I'm sorry. He returned 60% of the investment. Wow. So we're all going, he had refinanced and we went cha-ching. I thought I was a smart guy. I'm feeling pretty pumped. Followed by a fraud, followed by a fire, followed by uh, a pandemic. And we finally sold it. And uh, we didn't make any money on the deal at all, but we got all of our capital back. We didn't lose. So so the three listening audience, they're all a business. Bad things can happen. We try to ensure that it doesn't happen, but bad things can happen. And on a portfolio-wise, though, I'd say that's the worst performing, but I've had 4X and several 2.2s and 2.3s and lessons learned, and they only make you stronger and better. Absolutely. And you know, it's good Good you got your money back or you have the downside of having to sit out the market for that amount of time. So you've, it's opportunity costs and all of that, right. but you got your money back. So there, you can do certainly do worse. And I've never been in, I've been in 18, 19 different syndications as either a passive or active. Never had a capital call. Never want to have a capital call. Hope there never is a capital call. So it's still hard assets and a very good uh, investment class for people to invest. Absolutely. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? The most important lesson learned. I'm going to go with persistence and steadfastness. So I would say that if I have a skill, it is it is that it's persistence and versus there are many people in this that get into it with a get rich, get quick, get rich quick mentality. Mm -hmm. And it can happen. Then it has happened to some and, and has happened to even many. But I prefer uh, the steady persistence of education building your network, uh, understanding the sponsors and the sub-markets and the assets and persistence, just 
continue in it. And there's a lot of people out there and a lot of great assets. Absolutely. I, I certainly relate to that. Sometimes I look at my own, uh, I don't want to get a big head. I don't think about it as persistence. I just say stubbornness. I'm just very stubborn. I'm just going to keep cracking away until I get what I want. It's, you know, just going to keep going. You could have, you got, I could have easily said stubbornness. That's another good, <laughs> good word. It's a little more pejorative than, uh, uh, yeah. than persistence, but Randy, thank you for joining us today and in filling us in on a number of topics, particularly the, the KP strategy, if you will, why you might do it, why you did it and why others might do that as well. If folks want to reach out, they want to get in touch with you. If they want to learn about the deals that you're sponsoring or talk about, you know, your passive investing experience or whatever else, where can they track you down? Taylor, thanks again for the opportunity to be here. And the easiest way to catch me is on my webpage, which is invest-arc, A-R-K, invest-arc.com. There's a contact us page on there. And I would really enjoy speaking to anybody from your podcast uh, as to where they're at in their real estate journey and love to help them if I could. Great. Well, great conversation with you. It's a great way to spend a Sunday night or whenever our you know listeners happen to be tuning in. That's just when we're recording on a Sunday night. And to everybody out there, I want to thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That makes me feel good. That gives me the warm and fuzzies because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.